0: Did you get paid? 70 cents. 70 cents. A day? i Every two weeks. Every two weeks, you got 70 cents. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new documentary podcast investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system.
1: These are real stories when someone makes a call and says, we have a bed for you. We don't have a home for you, we have a bed for you.
0: Coming February 2022.
2: Hello, hello, listeners. It's Kyla. I'm here to tell you about Code Whack, a podcast that shines a light on the callous American healthcare system and what can be done about it. It reveals the healthcare hassles that threaten peace of mind, financial security, and at times, patients' very lives. Hosted by Brenda Gazar, you'll hear interviews with the sharpest minds in healthcare advocacy. Listen to Code Whack wherever you get your podcasts or by going to codewhack.libson.com. Hello, hello. Welcome to Pullback. My name is Kyla Hewson. I'm normally joined by Kristen Pugh, but if you're very patient, you'll hear her voice very soon. We are proud members of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. Today, we have a very exciting special crossover episode for you. We joined the folks at the Gender Troubles podcast, also part of the Harbinger Media Network, to discuss the porn industry. And if you're wondering, Gender Troubles, that sounds cool, what are they about? Gender Troubles is a podcast dedicated to debunking, demystifying, and making accessible the world of academic feminism. Kristen and I got along great with Eva and Emma. They talked us through porn, which, look, Kristen and I are not very good at porn, as you will learn, but we are very good at ethics. So we did a pretty good job on this one, and I hope you enjoy it.
0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of Gender Troubles and Pullback. I'm Emma Austin.
1: I'm Eva Espenshade.
0: I'm Kyla Hewson. And I'm Kristen Pugh. And today we are going to talk about the ethical consumption of porn. So Eva, do you want to introduce this topic a little bit?
1: Yeah, so for the month of May, Gender Troubles is doing kind of Porn Month, where we're looking at porn and porn consumption and different kind of facets. And I think as the inaugural episode, having the ladies from Pullback is just wonderful because I think a lot of stuff around being a feminist and porn is already like really contentious topic. And so to have, I would call y'all experts to some degree on ethical consumption in a way where neither of us are kind of maybe helping listeners and ourselves kind of think about these issues and different ways we can be better consumers in porn and just in, in general so i'm so excited thank you so much for coming
2: yeah we would be delighted i hope you don't mind i know we're all on camera but i didn't eat anything so i brought in a banana which is the <laughs> sexiest fruit perfect
0: we'll allow it yep <laughs> nothing nothing <laughs>
2: just gonna peel this and take a bite and then we'll get going <laughs> yeah it's fresh
0: <laughs> we could do some asmr too if you want to just eat quite close to the mic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I f- <laughs> like my mouth is full of banana. Banana is the worst possible fruit to eat before you record. <laughs> it's, and I think it's also one of the worst for ASMR. Like if you like an apple, that's some pretty good ASMR yeah. eating, you so know. True. But
1: banana is just kind of globby and gross.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It leaves your mouth dry. <laughs> so yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about yourselves? Uh, Sure,
3: yeah. Uh, You want to hear about the podcast or about who we are as people?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess both, like who you are as people, Why you decided to start Pullback.
3: Yeah, so I don't know. Pullback, it's a a podcast about ethical consumption. We've been doing it since late 2019. Kyla and I have been friends for much longer than that, though. And uh, we sort of got the idea to do the podcast when we were traveling together, which was it ended up being our entire trip was just basically us planning a podcast.
2: It was a lot of time in a car. We were, we were driving through Newfoundland, yeah. so it's like, you know, we were going to talk <laughs> about something. It might as well have been brainstorming for something we were both excited about. Exactly. Yeah. So
3: I don't know. My, for myself, uh, I have an academic background. I did a PhD on stuff that was sort of related to ethical consumption. And I now work for a government, and I won't say which one, because then I get to speak a little bit more freely.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I am less academic. I decided that I didn't want to pay for my education, so I just kind of have been living my life. And I have had like kind of a jack of all trades. I've had like 25 different jobs. (laughs) I've never been fired, just to clarify. (laughs) TikTok thinks I have ADHD and I'm starting to maybe think maybe I should investigate that. <laughs> Running pullback is like the longest commitment I've ever had. <laughs> so Kristen and I have a pretty pretty big anniversary coming up this year in November where it's like the longest I've ever been committed to something, Kristen. <laughs> when it comes to ethics and porn in particular, Kristen and I were really like hesitant maybe to... to take up the mantle on this because I'm going to speak for Kristen here, I guess. I don't think she watches porn. I do not watch porn. Kristen's shaking her. (laughs) Neither of us watch porn, unless you count True Blood or Pride and Prejudice, which I do. I did watch Bridgerton. Does that count? (laughs) It could, yeah. Yes, it does. But most people wouldn't count those things. (laughs) But we are really good at talking about ethics at this point. So we were excited to kind of like leave our comfort zone a little bit. And I did I did poll a couple of my male friends just to get like the user experience uh, point of view. <laughs> but what about you guys? Like, why did you start Gender Troubles? Who are you?
0: Well, Eva and I went to Concordia together. We both majored in gender studies. And then we were both finishing our last semester in March, 2020. I don't know if you remember what happened, in uh, March, 2020. Just, <laughs> um, so our studies ended very abruptly. Um, and then Eva moved back to Vermont. And um, we missed each other. And then I took a workshop with Andre Goulet about making a podcast. And I was like, okay, we could do this. And then yeah, we, we just kind of, we both were thinking about doing our master's at that point. But then we were like, it's really expensive. And it's we just got we just graduated. And what if we just kept talking about feminism, but in a, um in a, a less academic, I don't know, avenue to take it. So that's I guess how we started. And yeah, it's, it's almost our one year anniversary actually of the, of the podcast, which is wild. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, congrats. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it would be like June or, June or July, but yeah, I'm not, I'm definitely not a porn expert. I dabble in watching porn. I'll say it. Um, <laughs> but like from like, an ac- <laughs> from like a, a, a porn like academic standpoint, I don't really have a ton of experience, but Eva read a book, so. <laughs> I read we're, a we're book. good. <laughs> I think- We're covered. <laughs> funnily
1: enough, like a lot of the, or some of the feedback we get from listeners are like questions specifically on how, where we stand in terms of like sex work and porn and it's a very murky place for a lot of people and general assumptions about like what is feminist too and I as someone who used to watch a lot more porn than I do now have, have seen a lot and was on tumblr in like 2012 which was <laughs> so just,
2: so it's just that was just all porn
1: <laughs> yeah it <was> literally um, <laughs> I, I think I think that specifically porn but just sex work in general the space of like gender studies like a lot of feminists and academics have like really gone into porn shoots and done interviews and gone into these spaces and come back and really like burned the people who they were researching and so there's a kind of new wave I find uh, including the author of this book that we'll talk about who's really conscious of creating like good relationships with interview subjects and understanding like you don't just get to like waltz in and like write an expose and then waltz out. Looking at you, the New York
3: Times. (laughs) Yeah, seriously.
1: Um, And, you know, I feel like also with the pandemic, OnlyFans really exploding and the amount of porn people were watching went up a lot. Um, Everyone thought we were going to have a baby boom, and instead we just watched porn and didn't touch each other for two years. (laughs) Um, It definitely deserves kind of some, some more kind of investigation. And I think also like this would be a really good time maybe for us to like lay out kind of like what we're talking about specifically when we talk about porn, because I know for me, when I'm talking about porn, I'm talking about consensual adults who are doing this as a job, or sometimes you have kind of like couples posting stuff on like make love, not porn or whatever, but you know, things like the term revenge porn, like I get what they're saying, but there's better ways you can say it, or like child porn, which is child sexual abuse images like calling stuff porn that isn't porn um though I agree that pride and prejudice definitely can count as porn (laughs) Um, just from the get-go in this conversation like what we're talking about is like the porn industry we're talking about porn performers um people who are doing this not people who are unconsensually videotaped or did it just like as a sexy thing with a partner and then the partner put it online
3: yeah although if you're I mean We'll probably talk more about, like, the models of how people watch porn, and a lot of that gets in there. So it's kind of hard to separate sometimes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, when you're looking at Pornhub specifically, like, porn is in the name, but it's just a cesspool of, like, torture, revenge porn, child abuse, and non-consensual images. And is it porn if it's been copyrighted? So, like, if it's copyright infringement, someone's posting it without the person's consent, I think a lot of people would count that as porn, which is why I think like when I was doing this research, to me, I was thinking like, okay, there needs to be a distinction between mainstream porn, which is often a huge industry that gobbles up all of these other, as you were saying, Eva, these other things that aren't necessarily porn, but are displayed in a way where they're not separate from the porn that they're featured alongside. And so I was looking into a lot of like ethical porn, feminist porn, yeah, murky is the word.
0: <laughs> For sure. We'll definitely talk a lot about that and like the tube sites, um, I think, is a really important place to get into. Um, and yeah, I think like like Eva was saying, a lot of our listeners talk to us about about sex work and porn and like there's a very strong aspect of feminism that's very like porn abolitionist. And so I think where I'm coming from at least is like porn abolition doesn't seem to be Like the the option, uh, the realistic option. So how can we, yeah, be more ethical consumers and support, you know, the ethical creation of porn, I guess. So that's what I'm interested to learn about.
1: Do y'all maybe wanna start by kind of like defining like what does ethical consumption like mean to you? Like how should listeners kind of think about your kind of area of
2: expertise? Kristen is so good at this question. (laughs) I was actually gonna say I'm interested to hear you describe it. (laughs) Okay, I'll go first. The practice of making conscious buying choices is really the most important thing about ethical consumption. So thinking about whether is something that I'm going to buy is something that I need, uh, whether it's something that I can like creatively find an alternative for rather than buying new, and whether the places I'm supporting financially align with my values. And the process of figuring that out really is ethical consumption. And not everyone has the the energy or the wherewithal to explore that constantly I certainly didn't when we started and I was running a podcast about it but I found especially over the last like what two and a half three years that every little decision I've ever made has really snowballed to the point where now I I'm so extra compared to like where I was (laughs) like when we started the show Kristen I'm thinking about like I know we said it a few like we said it a while ago but I might be ready to give up toilet paper like something I never thought (laughs) Well, I mean, you do that if you are. I'm never going to be ready.
0: <laughs> I have a friend who started making her own toilet paper, and I always roast her about it.
2: No. <laughs> it. It is like the hippie. Like I'm like I'm dressing myself in like I mean, I don't have any hemp clothing right now, but like certainly linen is.
3: is oh my is god, in my I'm closet. in a linen linen shirt right now.
2: <laughs> it's a <the> very minute. <laughs> so yeah, to me, ethical consumption is no more or less than supporting the places that align with your values and. Kristen and I exist to help people navigate that process because the world that we live in is so globalized that it's often like really impossible. Like H&M markets themselves as a green company, which is just bonkers, right? Like, and that's something that people like, you're going to see the marketing and you're going to go, oh, well, they wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. So I can keep shopping with them, you know?
3: Yeah, I'm really glad you started because I think I would have given a much more sort of like egg headed answer. And (laughs) 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 I really liked what uh, what you went with there. Um, A couple of things I'll add. Um, I think that ethical consumption is, we can think about it in a a broader sense than just our purchasing decisions. Um, It's really about understanding that we as people have power. So some of that is forming those considered habits when we're trying to purchase something, knowing more about who we're buying from, where it comes from, forming relationships with companies. But it's also about sort of things like knowing where stuff goes when you get rid of it and how to sustainably and responsibly dispose of things. As well, it's about being an active community member in whatever communities you're a part of. So taking part in groups that match your values, things like that, and also being active citizens, right? And I think this is something that might be relevant to the porn discussion that, you know, we need to be participating in policies that could advance equality as well. And, you know, that might be voting, that might be going to protests, might be signing petitions or writing your representatives. But ethical consumption, it's not only about the purchasing relationship. It's also about the other ways that we connect to that sort of like producer-consumer relationship.
0: Are there a few criteria folks should consider when thinking about consumption?
3: So generally, when we're talking about ethical consumption, there are like four different categories of things to consider. So the first one is people. So that often is sort of like, what are working conditions like? If it's something that's produced in a place rather than like a service that might be sort of more virtual, what is happening to the community that's impacted around it? So that's people. Uh, Animals, uh, a lot of the times animals are impacted by different kinds of production. I think probably less relevant for porn, but rule 34 suggests not totally irrelevant.
2: (laughs) Kristen, I think you and I are not the ones to talk about that because I I think the animals and I I distinctly said when you guys suggested this episode that I I would not be talking about porn and animals because I just don't have the stomach for it.
0: (laughs) That's totally fine. We don't have to go there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But if animals are being harmed, then it's not ethical. And can animals- Animals can't consent to any sort of acts like that. So just exactly. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's what we'll say on the subject.
3: <laughs> um, the next category is planet. So that's things like, um, you know, climate change impacts, sustainability. I wasn't able to find really anything on this in the porn industry, but presumably that's a thing you could think about too. And then the last one is politics. So that's things like. Is the company that you're buying from paying taxes? Do they donate to political causes you don't like? Things like that. Did I miss anything, Kyla?
2: (laughs) No, I think that covers it pretty well. I think when it comes to the environment particularly, you can think about porn like you would think about any other big tech. So the, the servers that they're hosted on have an environmental footprint. Like, where where are these places being being served? Like, Pornhub, I found out today, and I'm sure that listeners are going to roast me for this, is a Canadian company. Yeah. I had no idea. Based in Montreal. That how far, <laughs> yeah, that is how far out of the porn industry I am. I didn't even know. They're, like, famously Canadian. And so the question then is, like, well, where are their servers, and how are they being powered, right? So that's something you can think about, as well as just, like, all of the waste. Like, condoms don't degrade i don't know that we want to take a position in that fight (laughs) i I think that for the most part i mean porn is a lot of the time naked people hanging out so there's not like a lot of waste on set maybe
0: i don't know yeah i feel like um in relation to those four four categories like probably the people one is going to be the most relevant to porn that makes sense but maybe maybe they'll start making biodegradable condoms um (laughs) Maybe they already exist. I have not looked into it. I know
2: you can get like lambskin condoms. Maybe those are biodegradable.
1: But then you got like animal activists after you for using lambskin. So it's like you really got to pick your poison over here.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) I do know that there are companies that will sell um, fully compostable or like recyclable vibrators. So there's one area where you could make your sex a little bit more sustainable. (laughs) What
2: about the batteries though? how does that- yeah
3: i mean you can recycle batteries yeah
2: well you could probably get something that's like crank powered right <laughs> 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 like masturbate like a pilgrim <laughs> yes.
0: uh, yeah there's a there's a sex toy company in montreal and uh uh i i'm blanking on their name but i'll link it in the show notes and they um have like a whole like biodegradable section of like biodegradable dildos and vibrators and yeah
1: In the context specifically of porn, like, what does ethical consumption mean? Like, are there first thoughts that
3: consumers should be
1: like having as they like feel horny and want to like go online?
3: I did some more research around some of the issues, but the first thing I started with when I was trying to answer this question was, you know, what are some questions you might want to think about? And I think there are two sets of questions and they're very sort of different issues. So the first one is questions that are around how the porn itself was made. So is it legal? Um, an important first question that uh, the answer <laughs> is often no to. Uh, does it respect the rights of performers? And um, do performers and others who are involved in making the porn enjoy good working conditions? So that's one set of questions. The other one that I feel a little bit less well-equipped to answer is sort of like the questions around the message of the porn itself. So you know, does it depict sexual violence or harm? Is it broadly sexist or performers referred to as sluts or whores? Does it use racial stereotypes and um, whose perspective is centered in the video? Eva, you might have more, uh, and Emma, you guys might have more uh, to say about those. I'm not as much of an expert on anything to do with that,
2: though. Uh, Kyla, what what are your thoughts? Oh, my thoughts were exactly what you said, except less eloquent. So really... Great job going first.
0: (laughs) Thunder stealing, sorry. (laughs) Like, would you say the ethical consumption of porn is, is
3: possible? I think one really important thing to start with when you're talking about ethical consumption in porn is the industry structure and the profit model. Kyla and I have talked about monopolies on our podcast before.
2: That's the number one problem with the porn (laughs) industry is that like MindGeek owns all of the porn and they're not an ethical company. Therefore, we need to decentralize the porn industry. But that also brings up because porn is like a particularly dicey issue. When you decentralize, it becomes harder to regulate. So the deeper parts of the web might have you know, more of that sort of illegal CD stuff that... So to be honest, there's a lot of that on Pornhub anyway. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, yes. So I think like, oh my God, Pornhub, like Visa and MasterCard pulled out of uh, Pornhub like two years ago now. And now you can only subscribe via Bitcoin. I, I tried, I went, because I wanted to verify that. So I went to Pornhub like an hour ago and I went to their subscription site and it was like, you can just pay for with with bitcoin and i was like okay well that's good to know and now like rip my ads for the next little while <laughs>
0: <laughs> just as far as like the um the profit model goes and and uh mind geek so bernard bergamar it, he is the majority owner of mind geek and they own porn sites like youporn, Pornhub, and RedTube which are all the major like tube sites and he's worth about two billion dollars oh fuck off Um, yeah yeah and then you have you know performers which we'll get into later but they're like average pay rate um and like yeah who's who's profiting off of this labor and who's performing the labor and there's obviously a huge discrepancy there
2: yeah and i think like a big a big thing that like i don't know maybe you guys will have different solutions and we can talk about solutions later but for me what i kept coming back to was just like we need to legalize sex work and that might not be directly related to the porn industry. Although
3: it is because the pay rate for performers is so low that a lot of them are sex workers as
2: well, which was not true in the year 2000. One of the things that would come out of legalization would be to destigmatize the shame attached to porn, which is something that really hurts not only the performers and the people working in the sex industry, but also the people who are watching porn or engaging in the sex industry when the porn that you watch is on a scroll like a youtube scroll think about how easy it is to become radicalized on youtube right you're you're watching a video about like how to make potted plants and before you know it you're like oh i'm gonna <laughs> suddenly i'm a gun nut and it's like how did that happen and so when you have like this industry where you're scrolling mindlessly through these porn sites like maybe some of the videos you watch are consensual and ethically made but you know the one next to it or the next one you watch might not be and what does that do to the psyche of the people who are watching this stuff right like it desensitizes us to violence to sexual violence to non-consensual sex to centering the male gaze and male sexual pleasure and i feel like the whole industry could be changed if only it wasn't living in the seedy sort of shadowy parts of society.
3: Yeah. And I mean, the, that sort of like YouTube style model and the fact that there are so many of these sorts of videos that you'll experience if you're on a porn website is actually one of the biggest reasons that there, it's so much harder to remove child exploitation from Pornhub compared to, and other porn um, streaming sites, compared to like Facebook or Twitter. Which, you know, I mean, there's still a lot of problems with both of those in child exploitation, but...
2: I don't know, Kristen, because I was like reading that like, there's actually more child exploitation on Facebook than on Pornhub.
3: Because people actually report it. People don't report on Pornhub as much um, because they're sort of inured to just seeing constantly.
2: As the porn watchers here, Emma and Eva. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they'll call us. We'll go down in history books. (laughs) enthusiasts on this episode Uh, (laughs) have you found that your scroll has like ever been interrupted by something really inappropriate
0: i think when i was younger and like first definitely like experimenting with watching porn i would definitely like click on a video not knowing what the words meant and then be like oh god what am i watching um i feel like now i i feel like a more like educated ethical porn consumer and i don't really like find myself on tube sites um Yeah, it's it. But definitely, I think as like a, yeah, as a young person, and it's, it's like a pretty like startling image to see when you're like first like developing your sense of sexuality and like your sexual identity and like getting interested in sex and then to see like really, um, like images that you're just not ready for. uh, Definitely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I'm I'm very hesitant to make these equivalencies between like, watching porn, certain types of porn can lead you to behaving certain ways in the bedroom. Like that was a really big thing that in the eighties, like women against pornography we're talking about. Um, It's kind of similar to the arguments around like, Oh, if you like play a lot of video games, you're going to end up like an incel school shooter. And like, you can, you can look at connections between these things. But I also find when we talk about younger people watching porn, like teenagers, it typically centers teenage boys. And it's like, what messages or like how will certain sex acts be normalized for teenage boys who maybe like are just starting to have sex or haven't had sex yet and like anecdotally like I I know many friends who are like yeah we were having sex so then suddenly like started doing something then I was like oh that, we, that, we didn't have a conversation about that or anything like I
2: I can speak from experience on that I have twice had sex with somebody for the first time two different men obviously uh and they started to choke me halfway through and i'm like yeah
3: why is that so common
2: honestly (laughs) like it's because of porn it's and and i'm like i'm like no like maybe some women are into that sure yes but if i am having sex with you for the first time i do not know you very well
0: yeah yeah i mean any kind of like uh sort of any, any sort of, like, kink stuff in the bedroom needs to be discussed. Like, that's, like, the key to kink is first, like, talk about it. What are your safe words? What do you like? What do you don't like? What are your boundaries? Like, no one should just go in straight into choking after, like, dinner in a movie. Like, that's yeah. skipping a lot of steps, a lot of very important <laughs> steps.
1: And that's not what you see, typically. Like, if you are watching more of... I mean, and they do have... I know a lot of, like, feminist porn sites will publish and everyone basically any performer has to do essentially like an exit interview saying like I consented to everything and there are conditions where people feel like they have to say that because you know someone's holding your paycheck but in general I know like a lot of feminist sites will try to have like much larger conversations where people get to talk about like what turns them on what turns them off and have like a bigger kind of groundwork that people get can watch sometimes they'll use it almost as like ads they'll be like hey like here we're gonna we have a new shoot coming up and here's all of us like talking beforehand about our boundaries but most like if you go on a tube site you're not going to see someone like having like a really you know in-depth 10 minute conversation about like what turns them on and what their hard no's and hard yeses are before they get to the fucking because the entire point of like people watching porn is you're typically you don't you don't get that storyline um as much
2: That's why Bridgerton was so uh, popular, you know, like that I'm sure we all like if you guys have seen Bridgerton or if any of the listeners have seen Bridgerton and you've gotten to like what episode eight or whatever, there is a sex scene where they're making out and halfway through... The guy stops and he's like, oh, are you okay with this? Do you want to keep going? And she says, yes. And he says, are you sure? And you know, you get the sense from the actor. Oh, he plays it so well that he will stop and not shame her if she decides she doesn't want to have sex tonight. And it's like the hottest thing anyone's ever done. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, Consensual sex is hot. (laughs) 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 Clear and informed and enthusiastic. Love it.
1: But yeah, I definitely think like if you, especially when you're younger and you like don't you don't have an in-depth knowledge of like independent porn sites or anything. And so you're just going to click in like boobies and eventually you'll end up on Pornhub. And it is very easy because of like how, like YouTube, they make money from ads and from keeping people on. And so, yeah, you can end up being like, Oh, great. Wait, no, that's not, even if it's just like, Oh, I'm not into that. That's like, it, it gets tricky. But I think also when you're younger and you're consuming porn, you know, if you're, in college and you may have your finances still controlled with your parents it's not like it's easy to like go buy some feminist porn or like subscribe to some people's only fans
2: yeah ethical porn often costs money right so there are some ethical sites where you can watch clips or you can get images because they want to make it accessible to people because if your only choice is the non-ethical places then that's that's hard right so but yeah, ethical porn, they want to pay their performers. And so that costs money. What do you do, right?
1: Speaking of pay, I have some kind of stats on like the pay stuff that I think is really interesting because like, I feel like, and you, y'all will probably agree, like typically like with consumable item items, like the general consensus is like, it's better to pay more for a product that, you know, like the workers who made it were, you know, ethical conditions and it's typically better quality. So like buying like a shirt from like a local designer made out of whatever, as opposed to like HM. But in the porn industry, feminists like queer indie productions typically like they have lower budgets and they pay all their performers a flat rate as opposed to mainstream, where different people get paid based on like their own identity categories, which we can get into, and based on the sex acts they perform. So in kind of performing in indie porn, you make less most people will make less than if they are performing in uh, like a bigger budget. So I, I have a quote from a book that I use to kind of structure the episode for me is by the um, author and academic Heather Berg. It's called and work, sex, labor, and like capitalism. It's a great read it has a bright pink cover. Highly recommend people will look at you in the coffee shop while you read it. And one of the interviews she does is with a performer, Maxine Holloway. And, Maxine Holloway talks about the differences between working in these different productions, so I figured I'd I'd read us this quote and we can talk about it. So the author goes, Flat rates may be more attractive to new performers and those who are unlikely to be cast in mainstream productions, but they can mean a significant pay cut for workers accustomed to making more for similar labors elsewhere. As Maxine Holloway, who performs in BDSM as well as queer, feminist, and mainstream productions, suggests... The idea that flat rates promote meaningful consent and equality among performers is, quote, nice theory, but it's not as if it's coming from a place of being able to offer extra money anyways. It probably means I'm just not going to do anal because that's not my valuation. So the flat rate is, I think, more derived from budgetary needs than equalization. I don't think it's like an either or, because we seem to be in the, generally in the camp that you should be like paying for your porn and paying for, you know, indie porn. But it is something I to think about is like, Typically, if you're paying for feminist porn, the performers are actually getting paid less a lot of the time than if they were doing big budget. And like how
2: how do we kind of square that or navigate that? To me, I think a lot of it comes down to treating porn like you would treat any other art that you're consuming, right? So, in my case, my favorite comic artists that are online, I buy their books and I subscribe to their Patreon. And that's something that you can do with your favorite performers as well, right? Like you can subscribe to their OnlyFans, you can, you can request custom content, you can basically support them directly, which is kind of where I started to land. Like one of my friends that I asked about his porn consumption was very kind to answer my questions. And I said, what's your favorite porn site? And he said, Reddit. And I was like, oh, I wouldn't have even thought of Reddit. And he said, yeah, it's because he likes to, it's like a community hall where people have their, 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 it's like a trade fair, you know, everyone's got their booth and you can kind of see what they have on sale. And you're like, oh, like I went to, um, I'm getting a tattoo soon and i went to the tattoo convention in vancouver like last weekend and i walked around and i was like oh i really like this artist i think i'm going to support them so i started following them on instagram and i maybe made an appointment with them to get a custom tattoo piece and it's like i'm going to pay for that so maybe you guys have a different answer but to me i think a lot of it is like these performers are going to maybe take the the lower pay to get themselves out there but ultimately i think It would be really great if more people were supporting the artists that they like directly.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about the sort of debate between a bigger studio and sort of more indie production companies. And probably you get more of a baseline with like a a big studio. You know, they're not going to be the best, but they're also most likely going to follow the law and things like that. Whereas like there's probably a little bit more variety with the indie producers. But I mean, I think, I think the sort of biggest takeaway, like it, a big lesson, if if we're looking at like the ways that people um, consume porn is really, whether it's an indie studio or um, or a big one, knowing who produced that content and actually paying them for it, rather than just sort of scrolling through a tube
0: site is like a really important first step, you know, start there. <laughs> yeah, not to, I don't want to like, I don't want to com- my own experience to someone doing like porn work because obviously it's like very different but like I work in in media um and like I work for like a little small like nonprofit like community tv station um and if I were to work for like CNN <laughs> I'd, I'd probably make way more money um but like I wouldn't be treated as well like at my job you know like I'm a person I have you know I can take a mental health day whenever I want like no questions asked I get I get benefits um I get paid vacation, I get, you know, treated really well and like a person. Um, and I feel like if I was working for CNN, you know, I, I would make more money, but I I would not be treated as well. Um, so I think that like, yeah, people make those kind of sacrifices all the time. They, they choose the not prop, not for profit over the like giant corporate gig, because, you know, you're not going to get, you're going to get paid less, but you're, you're going to be um, more of an individual. And I think that things like, you know, having access to healthcare, especially when a ton of this uh, content is being produced in the States. Um, and obviously, like, like the actual, like bodily labor is like very intense, what you're doing um, in, in porn work, uh, like having access to like healthcare, uh, paid sick days, um, mental health days is is something that would be really important in this line of work. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: Yeah. I think I mean, personally, I, I didn't, my assumption was people who performed in like, mainstream porn productions made more money than the data suggests and like, like a lot of industries like most porn performers and the studios are kind of really hesitant to share how much people make um, and there's a really big difference between like a young up-and-coming cis white woman what she makes versus a black woman versus a black man versus um, like a fat person you know, like, like it's it, there's a very clear hierarchy in terms of being paid and I think and this kind of goes back to earlier um what both you Kristen and Kyla were talking about Kyla were talking about with the um like the messages that are being shared in porn and I know like places like Pornhub have come out under a lot of scrutiny for being like we're trans allies we're like you know Black Lives Matter and then having entire sites dedicated specifically to like white porn stars who are women having their first time having sex with a black man. And they're getting, it's considered a first the way like having anal is your first or whatever. And the white female porn stars are making so much more than their black scene partners. But like, based on the data in this book, like the most typically a performer makes if you're like a cis woman doing like girl on girl, like just like a lesbian scene, it's like six hundred to eight hundred dollars, which is like I expected more. I, I'll, I'll be honest, like maybe not thousands, but you know, and you can make around it's like eight hundred to a thousand dollars for like penile or anal intercourse. And from for male cis male performers, they make more if they're in like a, a gay production than a straight production and some performers don't make anything because there's a whole in- cottage industry of specifically men who just like want to have sex with a porn star so they'll like be in a production
3: for free <laughs> which okay like that's one kind of unpaid labor I'm fine with I guess <laughs> <laughs> do they put that under volunteering yeah. on their CVs like <laughs> it's
1: volunteering <laughs> And like for 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 uh, like queer independent productions where it's flat rate, it's around like two hundred to six hundred dollars per scene. So I think also like when we talk about paying for porn, I I think you're really right, Kyla, about like paying directly because most performers like don't make a lot of money from doing these scenes. And a lot of performers in the industry who are interviewed in this book talk about because they have other jobs, they do other forms of sex work or they do other forms of like straight work. But it's almost like more like advertising. Like, you can make more as a cam girl if you are, like, a porn star. You can make more as an escort if you're a porn star. So in some ways, like, as we go into our, like, millennial everybody works a million jobs, like the gig economy, I think when we think about porn, like, you can't really separate it from performers who also typically are doing other forms of work to supplement their income. And so even if you go on, like, a feminist site and you pay for a scene, doesn't necessarily mean that the performers are going to get that much kickback. They're definitely not going to get anything on fucking, you know, like Pornhub or something. And if so, it's going to be a tiny bit. It's like Spotify, like artists on Spotify. Like you're not going to get, you get like 0.03 cents. So yeah, supporting like directly through kind of OnlyFans through, you know, there's a bunch of different stuff. It's never been easier you know, with smartphones and all this kind of stuff. Please don't pay in Bitcoin. Bitcoin's terrible <laughs> for the environment. I feel like we should just put that on the no list. But yeah, I, I don't know. I was I was very kind of surprised hearing about just how much porn performers make. Because I think sometimes there's an assumption that it's like, oh, it's like easy money or like, oh, you'll like get a lot of money. Where it's like these these are not for very hard jobs that involve using your body a lot. You're not getting paid that much.
2: Look, speaking as somebody who's been trying to market a podcast recently, <laughs> marketing's hard, you know? And like, <laughs> yes. if you're marketing yourself as a sex worker, it that takes time. Marketing costs money. It it's It's a hard gig. So I would say like, even if you can't support your favorite artists financially because of maybe whatever reasons you might have, you can support them like with kind comments you know what I mean like it's not hard to leave like a hey thanks you know (laughs) and I think that goes that's something that a lot of people don't think about either is like these are real people doing real work that do appreciate like man every time we get a compliment on our podcast it sustains me for a month so like thank you to the 19 people who've kept us going for the last like
0: two years someone (laughs) for the love
3: of God send us a voice message (laughs) Kyla will love it
0: Well, and like, it's so many of these um, performers are like shadow band on Instagram, which is like their main marketing platform. So if you do things like reposting their posts, commenting, liking, sending it to friends and stuff like that does, that does do a little bit. But I'm also like, I was thinking about this because uh, I, I I'm a musician and I've like released music over the last 10 years and it's always been frustrating i guess how little people are willing to pay for entertainment whether it's music whether it's movies i guess now yeah whether it's porn like um it's so easy to just like torrent a movie or you know listen to songs on spotify where artists are getting paid you know like pennies um and yeah i guess there's just like parallels there which like i i do i do find it a bit frustrating like if you're just give it, yeah, like just supporting an artist on Bandcamp by buying their album for ten dollars, you know, like does does way more than like just listening to a song on Spotify, uh, on repeat.
2: And I think that destigmatizing the industry would go a really long way in that, right? Like people don't think of porn performers as creatives, but they are—they're creators, just like a TikTok person or a musician. They're artists and they're creators, and they should be treated like that.
3: Yeah, but I think also like the. Um, The low compensation goes back to the structure of the industry as well, right? Like MindGeek doesn't just own tube sites. It also owns a number of the studios that produce porn. And because their profit is, like their their profit structure is geared towards getting you on the site to watch free porn so that they can make money from advertisers, um, they actually have a huge incentive not to take down pirated content, right? So even if you're... Somebody who performed in a porn that was produced by a studio that MindGeek owns, um, it can be nearly impossible to get pirated content taken down. And all of that erodes like the extent to which producing a porno is actually like profitable and that reduces the amount that people can be paid. So it's almost like because we have this sort of monopoly industry that's based on free streaming, you know, that leads to the fact that we then have to sort of, you would have to pay for. Um, Promoters through like the
0: porn version of Patreon, basically. (laughs) Yeah, I guess on that note as well, like, uh, there's this one of like apparently she's like the second most popular porn star ever on Porn porn Hub. Uh, her name's Mia Khalifa, and she made like 10, 11 videos when she was 21 years old. She made $12,000 total, and then now she, you know, uh, it's like whatever six seven years later she's she's in her late 20s now and she's lobbied so hard to get these videos removed um and like i said like her 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 videos are some of the most popular that have ever been released on Pornhub. uh like and people have made millions and millions of dollars off of her her images and you know she's like signed she's released petitions that have got millions of signatures um but has not had any success in getting her videos removed and she has talked a lot about how the, the they'll haunt her forever because um uh, she doesn't own the content like and it's it's just it's just out there in the world kind of forever.
3: Yeah. And I mean, another problem, I don't know if this still exists, because um, Pornhub was no. sort of like the subject of a lot of backlash recently. But at least a couple of years ago, um, it was possible to download the videos. And that was a huge problem as well, because then people can just sort of like, even if they take down the video once it's it's in the internet forever. So yeah, uh, another angle that I, I wanted to talk about, it's not so much related to ethics, but I was thinking a lot about MindGeek as a an evil big tech company. Um, I think if you think about them in that framework, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and like a lot of the other big tech companies, MindGeek data mines its websites and produces porn based on what its users view, um, which is, I think, important for two reasons. One, um, if you are viewing porn through a tube site, the videos that you choose to watch do influence what gets made in the future, so I think that puts some kind of moral responsibility to, to pick things that aren't like horrendous. But secondly, think of all the data that they're mining, even if they're not selling that to third-party advertisers today,
2: which is apparently the case. You know, <laughs> what if they start? <laughs> That's something that Kristen and I have been thinking about because we're about to do a couple of tech episodes. So that was fresh (laughs) in my brain too, Kristen. Everything I was reading about today, I'm like, well, this is just an evil megalomaniac like monopoly of a tech company. Like this is just the Facebook of porn.
3: (laughs) Ah, It's just naked surveillance capitalism.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I mean, thinking too, like we've been researching more stuff around like the history of porn and how I find sometimes kind of think people thinking back to the good old days of magazines and, you know, porn movie theaters and all that stuff. And there was like a lot of issues there and like a lot of underage people being in productions, people, you know, just like really like for all of its faults now, like we have a much more regulated mainstream porn industry than we had before but I really hadn't thought about, like, the tech side that much. I hadn't thought about, like, the servers and, like, you know, the evil corporate overlords. And so it's making me be thinking about, like, maybe we really should go back to magazines or something. Like, there's something to be said about, like, non-digital <laughs>
2: digital is so complex. Like as soon as you start again, like copyright alone, like maybe somebody uploaded a video in Albania that's copyrighted in the UK and you're watching it in Canada. Where's the line there? I'm sure that the, any like lawyers who are listening to this who like know about it, I'm fascinated to know, please, (laughs) please reach out.
3: (laughs) Just thinking about all those really aggressive, like no piracy ads from like the
2: early 2000s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't steal a purse.
3: Why are you
1: stealing? Yes. And it's always like you wouldn't steal a car.
2: I'm like, well, whose car is it? How easy is it to steal? <laughs> yeah, maybe I well, would. Like, uh,
3: when I, get I caught, would steal a super yacht.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What are some of the ethical differences between consuming like a mass produced porn at like a porn production studio owned or that's made by a porn production studio that's owned by Pornhub versus like um, getting on uh, OnlyFans and like? consuming independent creators. yeah I just
3: porn. want to pop in to say Kyla you can answer more substantively but I saw several comparisons of OnlyFans to farm-to-table restaurants and I thought that was hilarious
2: yeah I mean it really comes down to find a performer you like and treat them like an artist like you would for anything else. So like if their preferred method of being supported is through OnlyFans then support them through OnlyFans, but if they prefer something else, like I literally cannot name other websites because I'm not in the Look, I had a really terrible experience with porn when I was like 18. Not like terrible. Like I was trying to avoid an English essay and so I was like, I've never looked at porn. Let's do that. And so I googled <laughs> I, I I my roommate was home and he was a guy and I was like, how do you watch porn? And he's like, well usually you just like search for the thing you want to see. So I went to Google and I typed porn and he was like <laughs> and he's like I mean I guess that's one way to do it. <laughs> and I and I watched like two videos and one of them was a you porn like upload from just like a homemade site. Like somebody it was a woman doing a handstand and a man like going from above to like, it was not, it didn't look good for her or, or good for him. It, frankly, it looked very uncomfortable. It's just like really intense yoga with a sex yeah. act involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then I fell down like a, like a, a rabbit hole of like cartoon porn that really horrified me. Like some, there was a Snow White and the Seven Dwarves image that I'll never unsee. And like, <laughs> and so my very limited experience with porn has, it's been, it's been grotesque. It's been for the male gaze. Uh, somebody once sent me a video that he thought I would like, I guess, of a woman pouring Fruit Loops and milk into her vagina and eating it like with a spoon. And I was like, well, this is fascinating, but it's not turning me on <laughs> Like What? So-, <laughs> <laughs> so like, those are like the three times I've watched porn, which is why like, I am not an expert here. And so the, the, the take I have on it is very like, treat them like artists, but there might be another viewpoint. I mean, the men that I did discuss this with before going into this, they, they see it that way too, right? So I think, that there's, I think that there's a desire for ethical porn, and I think it's only going to grow as people become more aware of the issues in the industries that we've grown up with.
3: I, I, so I like that you're using the artists. I'm going to stick with my food analogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's, a, you know, OnlyFans is a little bit like Uber Eats, you know, so it can be really good because um, content producers get to set their own price. But because um, it's sort of an aggregator site that has a lot of power, um, it takes pretty large fees. Uh, one account said it was about 20%. So it is cutting into the profit margin of
2: the artist. I mean, think about the Etsy strikes. (laughs) Yeah, I was
3: thinking about Etsy actually. I I actually wrote Etsy in my notes, Um, but the company, like OnlyFans has a lot of power in the same way that Etsy does. And so it can set contractual terms that might not work for performers very well, but they don't have a lot of power to fight it. Um, And OnlyFans can terminate a performer's account for any reason with 30 days notice. So in a lot of cases, A performer may only have an OnlyFans, in which case totally fine to support them there. Um, But I would take the rule that I have with restaurants, which is if you're going to order from them and they have their own site, order from their own site because they set that up for a reason.
2: Yeah. And it's the same with Etsy. Whenever I go to Etsy, the first thing I look for is a site, a site link. I'm like, okay, do these guys, or I go to their Instagram and like, do they have their own website? Can I order from them directly?
0: Eva, did you have something to go to from there or should I ask the last question I have?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think what I what I have to say has to do with the last question and maybe kind of more of like the the feminist elephant in the room, which is like one of the main anti-porn arguments. Anti-porn arguments is like that violence is being portrayed against women and so kind of like is there an ethical way to consume more like hardcore or kinky content or content where it is kind of from, like, a male gaze perspective.
3: You know, I've met a few people who are, like, really into sort of the BDSM scene, and they seem to be some of the most consent-minded people I've ever met. So, personally, I think, you know, we could maybe have an interesting discussion about whether rape fantasies can ever be okay. I don't know. I'm a little bit... I mean, I'm a bit of a prude, so I'm I'm a little bit more wishy-washy on that, but I, I do think that, like, if you're watching... BDSM porn or something like that, as long as you've found creators who are serious about consent, go off.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's where I land too, is like, (laughs) did everyone consent? Are the performers genuinely getting off on it? Like, I think real pleasure is so important. And there's a lot of people that get off on BDSM. So if you're watching BDSM where the pleasure
0: is genuine, then I mean, yeah, go off. (laughs) (laughs) No, I totally agree. And I think that like, yeah, having like the conversation that we were having earlier about like, um, enthusiastic, informed and continuous consent and like, uh, talking about like, hard boundaries and safe words and all those things need to be included when, when you're consuming like more like hardcore or like BDSM content. And there are like, larger production studios like kink.com that um, are just like kind of like churning out, like super intense kinky content, um, but like have come under fire for what Eva was talking about earlier, like um, performers feeling coerced to perform certain acts. And then they always do an exit interview where they always ask, like, you know, did you feel safe and stuff like that? But performers have talked about, you know, how they didn't necessarily feel safe, but their pay was withheld until they did that exit interview. So I think being uh like whatever the the whoever's involved or like the production studio involved being really transparent about like when people are paid and how much they're paid and and that that is not contingent on them having a good time um and that they don't have to like say anything correctly in order to get paid, you know.
1: And again like thinking about kind of like feminist history and like feminist perspectives on porn, um there can be a tendency to kind of like separate like for her porn and like gentle lesbian porn as being somehow like better and more ethical as opposed to like kinkier porn or porn that is like you know um like orgies or multiple male partners or whatever and you know we don't like to kink shame on the pod and I think in general like there can be you can have like the most gentlest seeming instagram filtered soft lesbian porn and it's the people aren't getting paid well, and it's coercive, and it's by a huge company. And you can have like really kinky dungeon stuff. And everyone there is like, it's a better working environment, and everyone agreed to be there and is really happy. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that now I feel like people are a little bit more aware that kind of specific sex acts not going into like rape fantasies or like, real violence and stuff. Because again, like, a lot of BDSM violence, like especially. It's, it's a performance, but like, like in the realm of just like general porn landscape, I think people are becoming a little bit more aware that like it doesn't make you a bad feminist or a bad consumer to consume something that is considered like more hardcore or even that's considered like, like where women are more kind of, I don't want to say like objectified. I don't exactly know what I'm, I'm trying to express here, but I just think feminists have had a long history of trying to police People's sexuality and their sex acts and, you know, radical feminists, especially trying to draw these hard, fast lines like, oh, well, you have to be a this or you can't be doing that. Like, that's inherently misogynistic or problematic which is just not great for like coalition building and it's like hard to get people into a movement if you're being like oh you can't do spanking in the bedroom because
0: um... <laughs> <laughs> or else you're a bad feminist
1: <laughs> yeah everyone's just gonna leave the party um but like 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 thinking about ethical porn I'm I'm really I guess I'm feeling like really good and affirmed by this conversation that we're really talking about like the bigger picture and not necessarily on like there's a hierarchy of what's considered like the best type of porn to watch again like we're not talking about actual violence or like degrading stuff on like racial or sexuality or gen- like any that kind of stuff like that aside yeah because i'm glad that it's not the answer isn't and the answer isn't from the industry or from you guys like the gentler the porn is the more women are in the porno <laughs> like the better it is I mean, that's the kind
2: of porn I like. Thank you, Bridgerton, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize how uh, pornographic Bridgerton was, but I'll have to watch. It's very aggressive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't watch with your family.
2: I would say, like, my final thought on this is that really to improve the industry, it needs to be creator-led. And I think the biggest problem with the porn industry, the way that it exists now, is that legislators never speak to creators in the porn industry, right? And so... Whenever there's like a huge scandal, it's always like the creators who are like, yeah, we've been talking about this for years. Why is it now suddenly that people are caring? Because like the New York Times wrote an article about it. We have been petitioning for these changes and legislators just aren't listening to people. And so I think it comes down to just like any, any other ethical consumption issue. Listen to the people who are producing the product. They know better than anyone else what needs to be fixed in the industry, what's good about the industry and how it can how it can be improved on. Right. So I think the number one thing is to pick up the book that Eva read and, uh, <laughs> and ask your favorite performers what they think. Right. And like, hey, like, what do you think we should do to improve the industry? And they might say, like, hey, vote for this policy change or whatever. And then you should if you can't financially support them, support them by doing that, you know.
0: I love that you led, like left us on that note. It's a really important one. And I think it's a it's a great one to end on. All right. Well, thank you for tuning into this special Pullback and Gender Troubles Harbinger Media Network collab. We'll be back for more Porn Month episodes all May.
2: Yeah, Kristen and I are just about to put out two tech episodes. One is about surveillance capitalism. So Kristen's read two books. I'm I've read one of the books, and I'm see. I don't know. Can I read 400 pages in two and a half days? I think I can. So we'll see.
3: It was kind of you to assume I have finished reading the books. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And then uh, we're gonna be talking to Paris Marks from Tech Won't Save Us, hopefully. If you guys like my tech spiels, then you can tune into (laughs) our episodes about that, which will be coming out in the next couple of weeks.